This is the tea on international arbitration with Nicole Silver and Gaela Gering Flores, where we aim to give you bite-sized information regarding international arbitration topics of interest. Nicole and I are practitioners in the field of international arbitration, and we are both chairs of two committees of the DC Bar International Law Community. Today, we are back with you for another episode of The Tea, and this episode focuses on a topic that is very close to my heart, but a topic that, nevertheless, many lawyers love to hate, damages. Curiously, though, if most lawyers could have the opportunity to work with the damages experts I'm about to introduce you to, they might come to like and even love damages. That's right. Be jealous, because I have had the distinct pleasure of working with each of them, and I can attest to you that each of them has played a huge role in developing and fostering my love for damages. And with that, I'm gonna give one of my favorite silly lawyer jokes, which is, there are three kinds of lawyers in this world, those who are good at math and those who aren't. With that, it is my great pleasure to introduce the three damages experts who are the guests of this damages edition of the tea. First, I introduce you to Isabel Kunzmann. Isabel is a managing director at Alex Partners and is an experienced expert witness on financial valuation and quantum matters. For the past 15 years, Isabel has assisted clients, regulators, and arbitral tribunals in matters related to the valuation of complex financial instruments, concessions, and companies. Isabel is bilingual, and she has been regularly retained as a quantum and valuation expert to provide testimony in both English and Spanish in bilateral investment treaty arbitrations before ICSID and UNCITRAL, in international commercial disputes before the ICC, and in domestic regulatory proceedings in Latin America. Next. I introduce you to Rebecca Vélez. Rebecca is a director at Credibility International and provides accounting and financial consulting services to clients involved in litigation, arbitration, and other complex business disputes. She has significant experience in international arbitrations involving both contract and treaty claims under ICSID, ICC, UNCITRAL, SCC, PCA, and AAA rules. Rebecca is also bilingual and has filed expert reports on damages for arbitrations in both English and Spanish and has provided oral testimony at the World Bank. And last but not least, I introduce you to Yelena Alexandrovich. Yelena is a principal at Versant Partners, where she is also a damages expert and provides advisory and consulting services on valuation, damages assessment, finance, and accounting analysis, and fraud investigations. She has worked on over 35 international disputes, including in ICSID, ICC, and LCIA arbitrations. Her clients have included corporations, foreign nationals, and sovereign nations. Yelena is also bilingual in English and Russian, and she holds the internationally recognized de designation of Chartered Financial Analyst from the CFA Institute. Thank you so much, Isabel, Rebecca, and Yelena, 
for joining us on this podcast and sharing a bit of Damages Tea with us. Now, let's get to our questions. So my first question is, what do kids or young people in your life think you do? And how does a kid's understanding of what you do differ from the understanding of most lawyers? And for context here, for many years, my children, when asked what their mother did, would say, she reads and writes books. Really, really, really boring books. <laughs> now, those kids, those three kids have since grown up for the most part. Um, but I still have one young child who's eight now. And she says that her mother makes sure that people's stories get told the right way. And I'm pretty partial to that response, I must say. <laughs> Um, so I understand, Yelena, that, that you have some young people in your life who um, have ideas about what you do. What do they think you do? I do. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Gael and Nicole, for having us. This is a really exciting podcast to be a part of. Um, so I really appreciate you guys hosting us. And to answer your question, I've had some interesting responses, both from friends and from kids that, of friends and from some of colleagues' friends. Some are pretty spot on, while some are quite entertaining, to say the least. One of them that I've gotten from a colleague's kid is that we deal with other countries' problems. But I think my favorite response came from uh, one of my best friend's kids who's in fifth grade. And she said, I don't know what you do, but it's really cool. So <laughs> no, that's a good one. Um, I think lawyers probably have a much better understanding of the work that we do, but I don't know. <laughs> I hope we do. Um, and Rebecca, did you did you have some insight into um, or other people's insight into what you do? I also want to say thank you to both of you, Gaela and Nicole. Um, it's an honor to be on the podcast, so thank you for for hosting. As far as your question, I, uh, I have two daughters, 10 and seven. They say that I read a lot and I put numbers in, into the computer. <laughs> um, they like to comment on my charts. Like sometimes they'll, they'll look at the screen and they ask me why some of them have lines and some of them have fat lines relating to bar charts. As far as the, the lawyers, I would hope that the lawyers that I work with understand what I do. <laughs> um, but adults in general, a lot of my friends and neighbors, they'll ask me what I do. And I say, I compute or calculate damages for international arbitrations and participate at hearings. And I think because they hear the word arbitration and hearing, they immediately think it's, it's on the legal side. So I get 99% of the time I get, oh, so you're a lawyer. And I have to give them more details and explain that I actually calculate the numbers that lawyers use in their cases. And then they say, oh, that's interesting. And they kind of drop it. So I'm not sure if everybody really gets it or not. <laughs> Rebecca, I get that same exact response from my friends and new people that I meet all the time. Are you a lawyer? Yeah, like, no, it's like, it's instant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and then and then maybe, well, hopefully you've never got that question from a tribunal or you've been cross-examined with that question because that usually means that 
that somebody thinks that that your report or something that you said is a bit too lawyerly as opposed to something that should come from a damages expert. But Issa, then did you have a did you have a comment? Um, well, like Elena and Rebecca, I also get the "Are you a lawyer?" answer from people that are not involved in our world. But from my kids, uh, my son, who's thirteen, he thinks that I correct grammar, um, which is very funny because English is not my first language. And my daughter, for a while, thought that my main job was to create piñatas for her birthday party. So. <laughs> Not sure it applies very well to, to this podcast. <laughs> that that sounds like an amazing skill for any damages expert or anyone involved in international arbitration, frankly. <laughs> I, I feel like people would be more interested to hear about your career as a piñata maker. <laughs> yeah, better to make the piñata than be the piñata in a hearing, I say. Very true. Knowing as we do, that you guys are, are not lawyers and that you have to spend so much time explaining things, things related to damages to lawyers. What do you think is the simplest damages concept that is the most difficult for lawyers to really understand? And Isabella, I'll direct that question first to you. Um, sure, Nicole. I would say that the most difficult concept to understand for lawyers is the implication and damages of the assumptions behind the fair market value standard. And it, it is a simple concept in that it, it's not math related at all, it's more conceptual. So as you know, um, the general definition of fair market value is almost universally accepted as the price at which an investment would change hands between a hypothetical willing buyer and a hypothetical willing seller both being adequately informed of the relevant facts and neither being compelled to buy or to sell. So there's a lot to unpack in that definition. And I'd, I'd say the, there are three main implications of using the fair market value standard that arbitration lawyers have a hard time understanding. The first one is that the quantum expert should not value the investment assuming claimant is the seller. The second one, that the valuation must only take into account the information known or reasonably foreseeable as of the valuation date. And then finally, and I would say this is, this is the toughest one, is that a firm market valuation does not account for a typical market inefficiencies or irrational market exuberance or pessimism, which are sometimes found in the context of international arbitrations. And I think this is going to be particularly applicable these days with the COVID pandemic that we're going through right now. Rebecca, did you have thoughts on that? Well, I guess my thought is not, this isn't really a specific concept per se, like fair market value or, or WAC or something finance specific, but just um, an aspect of our job that I feel is difficult for lawyers to get sometimes is that I, I feel like with the numbers, we try to tell a story. And behind the story, we obviously need to back that up with, with our, our opinions and be able to stand by it. And um, we can't manipulate numbers to get a figure that is beneficial to the case. And sometimes attorneys are really stuck on wanting to, to get a specific number. And they ask, well, what if you change this or that? Will it get us, get us closer to, to this number? 
and they'll even ask to ask us to provide different scenarios. And I think that that makes it more difficult for the damages expert because we need to provide all of these different scenarios, explain why we're changing variables for each one, but yet we can't seem wishy-washy when we're on the stand as far as what our opinion is. So I think that's not manipulating numbers and just let them tell a story the way it is. I think it's something that lawyers need to let us do. Yelena? That's a good point for sure, both, both of you. Um, I will go back to a very simple concept to me and probably to Isabel and Rebecca as well, and that is depreciation. But you would be surprised or maybe not surprised how many times I get the question of what is depreciation? How do we incorporate that in? And how, like, what does that even mean? How does it apply to things? But um, the simplest way is probably to look at it at your car or your house and thinking about it as one cost that's incurred at a single time or potentially over the you know, initial years of an investment that's just simply allocated for accounting purposes, um, usually for tax purposes. That's it. It is, it is really easy over the useful life of the whatever, the investment, the assets, the, the car, um, and that's it. If lawyers really tend to look at damages experts as, you know, almost like objective calculators, how often do you have to have a conversation with the lawyer about how, you know, no, this isn't just an exercise in putting numbers together, like in a calculator, there is, there is prediction involved. There is some element of predict or a huge element of prediction involved. At some point, do you start to question your field's ability to truly gauge the value of something? Or, you know, at some point, are you, do you just kind of have a, a, an existential moment? <laughs> you think, what does this all mean anyway? It's all relative. I, I could say today that this asset is worth X and somebody else could say that it's worth Y. And it's just kind of all meaningless in the end because who knows, because value and money in the end is just kind of a made up concept anyway. You see where I'm going. Do you ever have these existential thoughts at all? Or is it just, is it just me? I would say if we didn't have markets where assets, investments trade all the time, I would say, yes, maybe it's a futile exercise because the value that we're calculating never comes to fruition in an actual transaction. But people trade investments all the time in the stock market. And yes, there is a degree of risk on whether what you have projected the investment will generate will happen or not. And that's okay. People still trade on those assets. Now, you do have the concept of uncertainty, which is different, right? There are certain times in the markets or there are certain investments that are so rare that there it is very difficult to assign a value to them. And you have to explain that to the tribunal or to the lawyers. But those cases are rare. It's more, yes, there is risk, but people trade on that risk and they assign value. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, but 
they still assign a value. And that's what we are often asked to do, to find what is that value that they assign. I would also add to that, Isabel, in that it is, like you said, it's our job to find that value. And as damages experts on either side, we're trying to help tribunal come up with what is the right value. And while I might think what I'm calculating genuinely is accurate, what Rebecca or Isabel might calculate on the opposing side might also be accurate depending on the facts of the case and what, what the tribunal rules is, is accurate, depending on the legal assumptions, depending on uh, any of the technical assumptions, depending on my interpretation of the data or Rebecca or Isabel's interpretation of the data. It's ultimately our job to be as independent as possible in order to get to the right value and to help the tribunal establish that value. Yeah. And this kind of leads me into the next question. It's somewhat related. So the, the last question was, what's the simplest damages concept that's hard for lawyers to understand? And now I want to ask you, what's the most difficult or complex or crazy damages concept for damages experts to really understand? And I'll, I'll point this question to Rebecca first. So um, I think that it's not a matter of not understanding it, but it's an, an aspect of our job that can be difficult is just coming up with projections as you mentioned for on your previous question is that many times we need to develop projections or certain scenarios with very limited data. For example, when we do a discounted cash flow model, we might not have enough historical data as a starting point, and then going into the future, depending on the industry, depending on um, the country that the investment is, there might not be a lot of public information out there to help you make these predictions. So that can be something difficult where, you know, sometimes we need to get help from, from an industry expert. And another example would be the like the market approach where we're looking for comparables, comparable transactions or comparable companies, specifically in international arbitrations, because a lot of these are private transactions. We, we just can't find information out there. So um, it's just something that's difficult to, to accomplish. And I think somewhat opposite to your question, it's not that we don't understand it. I think because we understand what we're actually supposed to do, we kind of make it more difficult for ourselves. We know what we're supposed to do and we just can't find all the information that we need out there. So we have to come up with alternatives and then other ways to do it. Yeah, I know that, that makes sense, Rebecca. Uh, Yelena? Yeah, my answer kind of builds on what Rebecca said actually, and it's, when you take those assumptions that you've made or conclusions that you've made, um, I've seen certain damages experts become so married to that concept that when new information and data comes along, they refuse to change their conclusions. And what it does is actually makes you lose credibility as an expert because it makes you seem like all you're doing is advocating for your client or you're being pigeonholed into one conclusion or one assumption and then unwilling to make changes uh, based off of new data that becomes available. And that, to me, I think is, is the most difficult concept that I've seen damages experts um, unable to grasp. Not everyone, of course, um, but certain ones. But just like Rebecca said, I don't think there's any actual damages concept that 
that I've seen that damages experts have a hard time understanding. It's more of the application of it due to limited data or um, being unwilling to, to change it. And Isabel? So I would say an issue that a concept that that is hard to define and quantify for damages experts is social value, right? So it, it's an issue that's coming up more and more in international arbitration as treaties or contracts have certain carve-outs for environmental impacts or social impacts of an investment. And social value is very broad, right? Um, I would say that one way to understand it is first, it, it is the value or cash flows that a, an owner of an asset will give up to the benefit of the asset user. So an example of this would be subsidized fees for electricity or transportation. Then the, the second component, which is even broader, is the economic and non-economic benefits that will flow to the community at large in either increased economic activity or better social and environmental outcomes of the community. So an example of this would be a mining company that will build schools and hospitals for the community in which the mine is located. Um, another example of this would be the, the building of a cemetery, right? So why it is so hard to measure the environmental and social benefits is because the value that the beneficiaries of those assets will assign to those benefits changes completely based on their point of view. So one stakeholder might find a benefit, a social benefit or environmental benefit from one asset while another stakeholder might think it's a detriment. So it is a very hard concept to define and to quantify. And as of now, there aren't any universal standards that have been applied um, across the board that could help the quantum expert community. I suspect that as the number of arbitrations dealing with these quantification of social value will make the community start to define those values and create more precedent on how we can do so. And it will become a more common occurrence as the governments continue to place greater emphasis on the environmental and social impacts of, of investments in their communities. That's, I mean, certainly as, as, as a lawyer who, who tends to represent a lot of, a lot of sovereigns, I think that's, it's good to, it's good to hear that this concept is, is being at least developed and understood more. But I think, and I'm sure I've said this before in other circumstances, lawyers um, are so focused on providing some sort of certainty or reliability or consistency to their clients. Uh, and certainly any case that, <laughs> any case that, it, that introduces an element of surprise or unpredictability is always a little, a little harrowing. As a, as a legal representative for a party. And I, and I guess back to Rebecca and Yelena's 
points that are that are kind of related when you find damages experts. Well, and, and I guess to some extent, when you find damages experts swimming in territory that perhaps they shouldn't be, especially if a, if a damages expert seems to be digging, you know, her heels into a particular concept. How often do you think that's because of the damages expert versus instruction from the lawyers to really dig in and not let go of a particular concept? I think I can start with that one. Um, I think it's probably a combination of both. I think part of it might be pride that you don't want to say that you did something incorrectly rather than actually truly trying to be a tool for the tribunal, for the claimant and for the respondent to use. You're instead letting your own pride get in the way of the accurate answer. And then the other part of it is pressure from lawyers or the client. Um, I've gotten that pressure uh, and you just kind of have to stand up and, and say, look, it's not my job to make sure you get the highest number or the lowest number. My job is to make sure that it's a credible value, that it is a value that can be defended and that I can stand up at and be cross-examined and say, yeah, I truly do believe that this is a number that can be supported. Just building on what Yelena said, and as I mentioned earlier, the issue of attorneys asking for different scenarios, um, I think that a lot of times that does come from you know the instructions from the attorneys because they want a specific number and we need to say no I, I just I can't manipulate the data to to get to that number because then when you're on the stand like the expert's the one that's on the stand it's the expert's reputation that is going to be on the line when the tribunal starts asking questions it, there's a fine line of how much you can comply with instructions from attorneys versus keeping your ground and saying, no, like, I, I can't do that because the numbers just don't let me do that. Like, I, I would not be comfortable defending that in front of a tribunal. Yeah, I would say that one issue particular to international arbitration that makes this situation worse is the symmetry of information between the claimant and respondent, respondent's expert. And the reason why it's worse in international arbitration is because discovery doesn't happen until the second round, right? Once the, the first round of reports on both sides have been submitted. So you do discover new facts that may be completely opposite to what you've been assuming. So I'm sure there are many legal reasons why you can have discovery at the beginning, but it would be really helpful for quantum experts if that were the case. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely understood. And I, I, I think that certainly most international arbitration practitioners who were raised in the, the U.S. system would absolutely agree with you. Um, you know, most, most U.S. practitioners or U.S.-based practitioners would like to have discovery early and often. <laughs> but I, I think that is having discovery um, or document production after the first round of briefs certainly seems to be a compromise between more, you know, common law discovery-driven systems versus civil law systems um, where there might not be any discovery whatsoever. 
and each side uses the documents that they have at their disposal, period, which, which sounds so absolutely foreign to someone in a common law system and, and certainly a common law system like that of the United States where, you know, where, where probably more than any state in the world, the whole concept of discovery and document production is, is on hyperdrive. Uh, and probably most people in the world, most lawyers in the world, look at the U.S. system, the discovery system, and, and kind of cringe a little bit with, you know, the, with some reason, because it's extremely expensive and extremely extensive. So, yeah, I, I definitely understand your point, Isabel. Uh, I just think that a lot of international arbitration practitioners think of that and think of a potentially slippery slope into U.S. style discovery, um, and and there are very very few people in international law who want that to happen. Thank you for listening to part one of the damages edition of the Tea on International Arbitration, and to our damages expert guests Isabel Kunzman, Rebecca Velez, and Yelena Alexandrovich. And thank you to the DC Bar. To check out more of what DC Bar communities have to offer, please visit dcbar.org communities. You've been listening to the Tea on International Arbitration. Watch out for new episodes, including part two of this damages edition of the Tea on International Arbitration. And if you like this episode, please tell a friend about it and subscribe at anchor.fm slash dcbartea or anywhere you access your podcasts.